Father, I pray that you would bless your words to our hearts, that they would hit us with force and live within us. Lord, I pray that you would bless my lips, that I would not speak falsely, and there would not be any part of me that would come through this, Lord, but it would just be your word and your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right. Um, when we last met over the book of James, it was to confront the size of the works, good and bad, that are accomplished by the tongue. And as we read that passage a couple of weeks ago, we were left with the feeling that maybe our tongues are not connected to our brains at all, but um, they're on their own mission, and they are driven by another tiny little brain somewhere else in the body with its own agenda. And I'll leave you to speculate where that might be in your own case. Um, I've been very suspicious of this big lump near my big toe for some time. I think that's perhaps what drives my mouth some of the time. And my, my oh, I can see my mother shaking her head sadly. <laughs> Whilst James goes back to the theme of works this week, specifically the spirit in which they are done, he does give us something of an answer to that question, how can I possibly control my tongue, when he gives us some insight into real wisdom. So please turn with me to James 3, um, where today we'll start reading uh, in verse 13. Right. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So, to start off with, a quick test. Not like the one I tried the other day, handing things out to make you afraid, but um, we have a quick test. Um, can anybody tell me where you think these slogans might have been seen? Hmm? Save the trees, eat a beaver. I don't know what a beaver tastes like. Any ideas? There's a, there's a clue on the left-hand side there. T-shirts, of course. They're all found on T-shirts. Now, many years ago, the pastor of a church that I was attending in a small town in the center of Zimbabwe, he gave us a little personal testimony of how when he was a young man, he'd felt very burdened by the public face that he wore. But no matter what he tried to do, he just seemed to be powerless to change it. When an opportunity came for him to go and study to become a pastor in America, he was very hopeful that he might find a new start there amongst people who didn't know him at all, and that maybe by leaving that emotional baggage and those behaviors that he didn't like behind, well, he'd, he'd have a chance to become a better and new person. Well, of course, he was dismayed to find that um, 
his attitudes had just stuck with him like glue. Wherever he went, he was the same person. I was very, I was very struck by the example that he used at that time, and, and I've always remembered it because he spoke about how he had just taken his T-shirt with him. <laughs> we all pull these emotional T-shirts on to cover us up and to make their, um, their deception even better, we put clever and distracting things on them like this. So what does your T-shirt say? <laughs> well, how many have you got? I know I've got heaps. And this is what James is talking about today. People wearing T-shirts that appear to be made of wisdom when in fact their insides are really not made of the real thing. And this is very consistent with everything that we have seen so far in this marvelous and practical book. How will we know when others are genuine, genuine Christians? And more importantly, how do we ourselves measure up in this respect? Well, what's outside must be a reflection of what's inside, answers James. If somebody looks like they might be wise, well, how is that look borne out by their behavior? Now the thing we ought to be seeking is perhaps a little bit surprising because it's not what you would generally, generally expect. You know, one would imagine that a wise person would normally be somebody who would be confident and assertive. But James links good conduct in this area with something quite different. He links it with a meek attitude. Now where have we heard that before? Well, of course it's in Matthew in the Sermon of the Mount from none, none other than Jesus. You know, chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And while I was researching this sermon, I came across a very interesting table that parallels the Sermon on the Mount with James's teachings. And I felt like a bit of a dummy because I hadn't really noticed this before. But I've included it in your sermon notes um, so that you could have a look at that at a later time. I'm not going to spend any time on it today because... I don't think that it's, um, it's relevant, but it is nonetheless very interesting. And it does have a significance, though, because it demonstrates that there is a real spine in James's writing, because it has these links to the rest of the New Testament. He's not just writing from his own convictions, but he's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and he's telling us how we ought to be living in a way that is consistent with Jesus' teaching. And I believe that gives his writings real authority. Now, the phrase that we see in our passage today, uh, meekness of wisdom, is a translation of a Greek word that is sometimes used to describe the state of an animal that has been tamed so that its power is brought under control and then can be directed in a useful manner. Now, sometimes when I look at examples like this and uh, find myself compared with an animal, I'm not always very comfortable with that. But you know, the fact is, our carnal nature, well, it's just as wild and dangerous, and for that matter, as useless for God's purposes as an untrained stallion. It has the potential for good work, but before that can be realized, a few things need to happen. First of all, the animal has to be subdued, then it needs to submit. And finally, then, it will be able to give service. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but as exciting and interesting a three-point sermon as that seems, complete with the required alliteration, 
we must now move on to the rest of the sermon. The point remains that the wise way to go about our works for God, and remember that we're called to do absolutely everything for God, is in meekness. Does this mean that we have to, you know, slink around like a mouse, jumping every time somebody says boo? <laughs> I don't think so. It just means that we should work quietly, not drawing our attention to ourselves or doing work just to, to gain credit from others and to look good in their eyes. I got this definition of meekness from a Bible dictionary, and I think it explains it very well. It says, meekness, an attitude of humility towards God and gentleness towards people, springing from a recognition that God is in control. Although weakness and meekness may look similar, they are not the same. Weakness is due to negative circumstances, such as a lack of strength or a lack of courage. But meekness is due to a person's conscious choice. It is strength and courage under control, but they are coupled with kindness. The Apostle Paul once pointed out that the spiritual leaders of the church have great power, even leverage in confronting a sinner, but he cautioned them to retrain themselves in meekness. Meekness is a virtue practiced and commended by our Lord Jesus. As such, it is part of the equipment that every follower of Jesus should wear. What a great definition. So what is our motivation for this meek attitude? Must we simply obey God just because He says so? Or is there something a bit deeper? Well, I believe that Christians should be meek because we have realized just how little it is that we have brought to the party. What we are, we are because of God. Every talent that we have comes from Him and only from Him. And most of all, our precious salvation is not something that we merit or have earned. It is His gift. We had nothing but sin and brokenness to offer. But God reached out in His mercy to save us from eternal death through Christ's death on the cross. And that was His only Son, it was the Lord of creation brought low to pay the debt for our sins, for my sins. This is absolutely overwhelming favor from heaven for absolutely zero service rendered by us. And when I look at that imposing and weighty gift arranged next to my pitiful self, it's very clear to me that pride is completely out of place. We have nothing to boast in of ourselves, thus meekness is wholly appropriate. We should be willingly in the sovereign control of God. And I believe that this is a particularly hard message for men to hear, especially when we're in a culture that glorifies hard men in teams like the Springboks and the All Blacks. <laughs> the world's model of manhood isn't meek. It likes to hold up the Arnold Schwarzeneggers of this world. And they say, that's the ideal. That's what you should aspire to be. But it's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we are called to meek service. And there are no excuses. No Christian is exempt. Because this is what our Lord and our Master requires of us. James says, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthy and sensual. 
We might think that we have some idea of what wisdom looks like, says James, but if we look at what is driving it, what we think is wise in our hearts, and we find envy and selfishness there, then we know that we are deceived. Because our wisdom doesn't come from God, and we shouldn't waste any time at all trying to change the truth to suit ourselves, because we never will. I think it's appropriate at this time to take a little bit of a diversion into the topic of wisdom, since it's very well addressed in this book of James. In doing so, we're going to pop backwards a little bit into some ground that we've already covered very quickly, but most of what we're going to learn is in the passage today. And we're going to jump around a little bit in there, so I'm just going to leave it up on the overhead. And um, you'll also find there's a, another table in your notes that breaks down really the balance of what I've got to say um, as a table. Right, first of all, as we can see from verses 13 to 15, there are two kinds of wisdom, spiritual and unspiritual wisdom. One is desirable for a Christian, I hope we see it's desirable, and the other is definitely not. Since the first kind is desirable, how are we going to go and find it? Well, it's very simple actually. We must ask God in believing prayer, as we've already seen in James 1, verses 5 and 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. When God gives that wisdom to us, that worthwhile kind of wisdom, it's going to come from above. It's going to come from heaven, not for any, from, from anywhere else, as verse 17 shows us. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Why am I trying to emphasize the source? Well, because we might think that true wisdom, it comes from accumulated experiences here on earth that are tempered by our character and those experiences are directed by God. But this process is clearly incorrect when we understand what James has to say. This is the understanding that he speaks of in verse 13, that we cannot look inward for resources in the process of sanctification, but we have to look upward. Although I've as I've previously said, we have to cooperate in openness, trust, and obedience with God in this work. The power for our genuine transformation can only come from Him. We have to realize that trying to change in our own strength will be doomed to failure by our sinful natures. So true wisdom is associated with understanding our weaknesses as sinful humans and turning to God for the answer. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Let him show by good conduct. We have heard many times how the character of a genuinely saved person will stand out from those of unsaved people. It's impossible to hide the work of the Holy Spirit if it's really there. In the case of holy wisdom, its evidence is shown to everyone by good works and a meek character. And just remember what I said about meekness. It's strength 
and courage under control, coupled with kindness. When we are spiritually blessed with holy wisdom, we must live it outward in the world. So what are the characteristics of heavenly wisdom? Well, there's a whole heap of things, as we read about in chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. We shouldn't find any of these characteristics to be surprising because they are consistent with the character of God. Now, the word pure, which means morally clean and faultless, it actually shares the same Greek root as the word holy, which bears that idea of being completely separated unto God and His purposes. So there's this, this strong link between purity and holiness. It's very clear in James that wisdom that is pure must be, go beyond giving our heart and wanting to please God in what we do, because these are just internal things. They're easily hidden. Pure wisdom must manifest itself in visible acts of holiness, which bring health, peace, and selfless service to those around us. Heavenly wisdom is pure because God's motives are pure. He is not seeking personal gratification or glory when he makes decisions because he is sovereign. Maybe it's now relevant to ask what we are talking about when we use this word wisdom. How do I actually do something that's wise? Well, it's mainly knowing the right or the perfect thing to say or do in any circumstance. And this is a very different, difficult thing for any human to do because our decision-making process is always colored by our character. It's colored by our needs and our wants and our experiences. And it's further hampered by our inability to either know the truth of what we hear or see and our lack of understanding of what the consequence of our actions will be. You know, I've often watched people in court and thought, the judge has an unenviable task. Because especially in today's society, people will come in and put their hand in the Bible and glibly lie like crazy. Okay? And yet that man or woman has to make a decision. We don't know the truth. So how do we make a wise decision? And also, how do we know what the consequence of our actions are going to be? Because small actions can have very large results that were never intended. And there's a thing here called the butterfly effect. Now, Philip, I think there might be a chance here for you to feel a little bit proud. I don't know if you know about this, but um, this, this butterfly effect seems to come from the work of a fellow called Edward Lorenz. Right? He was an American mathematician and a meteorologist. And uh, this idea is based on a thing called chaos theory. Now, chaos theory is a school of mathematics that attempts to figure out for example, where a ball might end up if you rolled it down a hill. Now, that might sound like an easy thing to do, but what chaos theory is looking about is saying, okay, I started the ball rolling here and it ended up there. Now I moved this ball one thousandth of a millimeter to the side and I set it to roll and now it ended up over there. Okay? And they're trying to use mathematics to, to figure out why. Um, it happens like that. Now, 
um, the idea that one butterfly could eventually have a far-reaching ripple effect on subsequent historic events seems to have first popped up in a short story, a science fiction story actually, by Ray Bradbury about time travel. And in fact, there's been a movie made about that not too long ago. Fellows going back into time to shoot dinosaurs, and some of you might even have seen that. Um, but uh, this fellow, Lorenz, he was using a computer model to rerun weather prediction. Now, Daniel, this, was, this computer was in 1961, so it must have been quite a machine. <laughs> anyway, he, he discovered that um, when he entered a decimal, 0.506, because he was getting a bit tired and lazy, instead of 0.506127, he got an absolutely, completely different weather prediction. You know, and he was amazed because it was you know, a very tiny amount, but it had this huge difference. And Lorenz published his findings in a paper for the New York Academy of Scientists, noting that one, one meteorologist remarked that if the theory were correct, one flap of a seagull's wings would change the course of weather forever. Later speeches and papers by Lorenz used the more poetic butterfly. And according to him, when he, when he wasn't able to come up with a title for a talk he was going to present, a colleague came up with this idea, does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas as its title? Okay, So that's, that's the butterfly effect. And the point is, we might think that we're doing a wise thing now, but really, as humans, we have no idea what the end result is going to be. Okay? But God does. The thing is that no matter how clever the mathematician or complex the model that he's concocted, no man is ever going to be able to accurately predict the end of a chain of events. But there is someone who can, who sits outside time, who sees everything, and who knows everything. And this, of course, is our Heavenly Father. With God as its source, such wisdom must be pure, because He knows what's going to happen when He acts. He knows what the truth is, okay? And the consequence of that wisdom has to be peaceable and gentle, full of mercy and good fruits, showing no partiality or hypocrisy, because this is the nature of our magnificent God. And this is our standard, the example for us to strive for. And He will provide that kind of wisdom for us if we ask Him for it. That's his promise in the Bible. It might come to us as inspiration or instruction in a course of action. It might be putting us in a particular situation that challenges and grows us because that is God's wisdom in action too. When I read that wisdom from above is full of good fruits, I think of something succulent and tasty. Does anybody know what a mango is here? Yeah? That mangoes? Very, very succulent and juicy things. They're kind of thing that leave you with juice dripping off your chin. But you don't care because you just want more. <laughs> what can you do with something like that except share it with somebody else? Hey, this tastes great. Wouldn't you like a bite? And when you've eaten your fill, there's that marvelous feeling of contentment and perhaps the need to go and assume a horizontal position somewhere warm and soft. <laughs> and that's why James says that spiritual wisdom produces the fruit of righteousness and a state of peace. And why wouldn't you want to pass that on? 
Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In today's passage, there is a great deal said about the opposite of heavenly wisdom, and that is earthly and consequently, consequently unspiritual wisdom. Let's have a look at that too, so that we can recognize its work in our lives and try to avoid its use. Firstly, where does this kind of wisdom come from? In James 3.15, we see that it certainly doesn't come from heaven. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Now, please, folks, we are a good bit into the sermon now, and I'd, I'd be lying if I didn't feel that it was reasonable for some of you to be asleep. But, and I've seen some eyes shut. I'm not, not naming names, but I've seen some eyes this is probably the most important thing that I'm going to say today. So if you, if you take one thing away from the sermon, please try to remember this, okay? This is this whole section that, that we're about to talk about now. This word sensual, today it mostly has sexual connotations. But the Greek word it comes from just means belonging to the natural or physical world or an unspiritual place. It has to do with living in the domain of the five senses, concerned with this life only. Being sensual is being in common with lusts, illicit desires, and unclean practices that open a person to the demonic. Galatians 5.16 admonishes us. It says, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Since living in this way excludes any spiritual input, it also excludes genuine wisdom. Now you might be sitting there and thinking, hey, <laughs> I'm not demonic. Um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't cuss and my head doesn't spin around and all those sort of things. But, um, you know, really, if you stop and think about it, actually that, that state of living in the physical is very common for all of us because we get so wrapped up in the busyness of the day that we just forget to look up and think about God and include Him in, one, in what we're doing. And then later on in the day, we might wonder why we have made some poor choices. Well, God wants us to walk through the whole day with Him, not constantly running off by ourselves to go and play in the bushes where we might pick up some bites and scratches. And I, want, I need to ask you a question now in regard to this. Do you think that it will suit Satan's purposes to have our attention drawn away from God and our actions driven only by what is really our sinful nature? Well, of course it does. When do you think we're most likely to sin? Are we when we're engaged with God's presence or when we're on our own mission? That's why this is important. It's because it's so easy to forget how we need to look up and include God in our, in our daily lives. In everything we do, from the time that we wake up to the time that we go to sleep, we should be engaged with God. Because if we're not engaged with Him, the odds are that we're going to be doing something we shouldn't be doing. Let's make sure that we're aware of God at all times, if we're serious about living our lives for Him. I don't think it should be hard to remember. <laughs> Goodness knows I do it myself, but... It shouldn't be hard to remember God because, you know, when you go outside on a clear day, you're always conscious that the sun is shining up there. You just, it's always in the corner of your eye. 
And God's holy brilliance is the same thing. We should always be conscious of that. Let's move on. In the same way that heavenly wisdom is an expression of God's nature, earthly wisdom is driven by earthly desires like jealousy and selfishness. We read in verse 14, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Many of us will be familiar with the computer acronym GIGO. Yes? What does it mean, Tim? Garbage in, garbage out. I've often heard my daughter moaning about that stupid machine okay, when she's struggling with the computer. And of course, I've never done that myself. Obviously, since the machine is just that, it's a machine. It has no intellectual ability or malice in it. Its outputs are only as good as its inputs. So if you put garbage in, guess what you get out. If we input jealousy and selfishness to life, we cannot expect to see love and roses coming back our way. Okay? Garbage in, garbage out. Thus the fruit of unspiritual wisdom is, as verse 16 says, confusion and every evil thing are there. And we can be sure that they'll be there in good quantity because when envy and selfishness stick out, just like that tip of the iceberg, the picture we're all familiar with, we're surely going to find a bigger bulk of confusion and every evil thing below the surface. Fantastic word next. But. Okay? But in this one word we find hope and encouragement. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is a wisdom to hope for and aspire to. In the end, it practically comes down to choices. Is the fruit of heavenly wisdom to choose to live like the rest of the world? Divorce and homosexuality, they're okay. They're just life choices. Living with someone before getting married is, get, is good because it helps you to be sure about the relationship. A few drinks with your mates won't hurt you. Hey, let's legalize cannabis. These all seem to have reasonable arguments for them that are made by people that are cleverer than me. So why shouldn't I choose them? It's because when I analyze the motivation for the choice, it is sensual and earthly. It is all about me. And it shouldn't be about me because the glory and the honor can only belong to Him. My life must reflect the choices that God has made for me because of the debt that I owe and the knowledge that the choices He has made for me were made in holy, not earthly wisdom. We must ask Him to bless us with His wisdom and make the right choices. So what will be your choice today? Let's pray. Father, thank you that although it's painful, 
it is your blessing to show us where we err, to remind us of what you need from us. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts in such a way that life wouldn't overwhelm us as it usually does, but that we'd remember that you are there all the time and that we would make the right choices to please you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.